Hello, and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and we have a great episode with Brandon Metcalf, who's the CEO of Place Technology here in Austin, Texas with me. And, you know, full disclosure right up front, uh, we are an investor in Place, so we are completely excited about this company and have the real fun of watching them release one more module of product at a time and back and forth of what's working, what's not working, what to do better. So it's been a joy working with Brandon. Brandon is an entre- serial entrepreneur. This is not his first company. He's also an investor and advisor. He can be forgiven for having completed a degree at Harvard Business School. <laughs> and He's also the, the he runs his own podcast, which puts my name, Fireside with a VC, completely in the grave. It's called Cash and Burn, Cash and Burn, which is really cool. And it completely fits with what Brandon does and who he is and making sure that you do not crash and burn because you have your eye on cash. But it's not just about keeping your eye on cash, as my brother always said to me, which I thought was amazing advice, but it's other KPIs. And so- Place technology really drills down into SaaS companies. So if you're a software as a service company, you should pay attention to what's happening with Brandon in place. Um, And I'll let him get into it. But uh, previous companies, let me me just get here. Um, He's got another company, Blueprint Advisory, which makes software focused on the Salesforce platform. So when Force.com came out, Brandon was the first guy there, I guess. And he's an expert on building products and companies on the Salesforce platform. Um, Brandon, welcome to the pod. And uh, why don't you get us started of um, explaining first your background that led you to even think of Place Technologies? Hey, no, thanks. Uh, I'm glad to be on. Um, it's been fun to to get to know you and the firm um, since we met and you guys invested and took the big risk on on me and what we're up to. Um, so we do have a lot going on. Um, my background, uh, I started my career in banking when I was in my early 20s and was basically popping around the company opening banks and got tired of that and um, stumbled into staffing and recruiting with Kelly Services and held a variety of different leadership roles around the United States with, with Kelly, which was a great experience. But one day I got randomly recruited um, by this guy named Kent Gray, who I'd never heard of, who just called me one day and said, okay, can we go to lunch? I'm like, well, who the heck are you? Um, went to lunch with him. He recruited me to his company, uh, which was a retained search firm for basically C-level uh, CFO finance type people called CB Partners. Joined that. Um, ended up taking over. Well, first I was an executive recruiter. Then I got randomly recruited to Google. Ended up telling Google no. Stayed with Kent at CB Partners. Um, took over technology for the company was really frustrated with software that we had for that company. I was really frustrated with the software that we had at Kelly Services. And I came up with an idea for building a software for staffing and recruiting firms. Talked to Kent. He thought I was a little nuts at first because I had zero experience building a software company. Uh, But he took the risk. We decided to do it. We built it internally for us first and then went back to Kent a short time later and said, I got an even crazier idea for you. Um, and that was to commercialize the product. Um, we did. Um, so that was 2009's where I came up with the idea for Talent Rover. 2011's when we commercialized it. Fast forward 
We ended up having nine offices in eight countries, customers in more than 40 countries and exited to our biggest competitor in March of 2018. And after, uh, and after raising how much funding? We raised $28 million for that company. Um, 25 came from 15 angel investors. Um, 3 million came from our largest customer. Um, so a very non-traditional way of raising money, which actually is what led to the idea of, of place where, you know, with all those offices and customers around the world, I would literally spend two weeks a month on a plane, just flying around the world, legitimately just around the world. Um, it was awesome. It was fun. It was exhausting. I was glad I was as young as I was then. Um, but, you know, even during that time with, the amount of capital we were spending to grow and how much cash we needed, uh, I had to get really good at understanding our financials. Um, and I developed all of these cash flow forecasts and just forecasts in general in Excel. And I was spending, I don't know, probably 20, 30 hours of my own personal time working on these models. But our accounting team was spending probably well over 100 hours a month. And we looked at software to do it. And none of the software really worked. And it was just a pain. And I called the spreadsheet the beast. Well, through, <laughs> through the life of the company, we maintained these. They gave me the confidence to be able to share with um, our super angels how much money we needed and why um, those angels had the confidence to invest. And it just, just worked. Um, Can so I jump in for a second? So I think the fact that you raised funding, and I don't want to hear the entire blood and guts of it right now because it's not time, but you're probably getting cash in from all these different people and you're in a situation where you need to communicate with not just one lovely venture capitalist person, but with many of these angels and all their different personalities. And so you became like, and I think you still are best of breed at reporting in how to communicate with a wider field of investors while continuing to get cash in the door. And I mean, that's a lot of money to raise from angels. So this, this kind of forced you into having the discipline to measure, report, and communicate some of the stuff in the Beast Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. And it was, you know, I had a co-founder and we blocked and tackled um, this whole process of how we did this. Um, and it, I mean, it, it really taught me the intricacies of how to do financial forecasting, how to do reporting. It taught me really what mattered to the investors. Um, like one of our investors, a uh, guy named Mike Lehman, he was the CFO of Sun Microsystem for 20 something years. And then he was, I think he was the interim CEO for a while, but then he took Arista Networks public. Then he took Palo Alto Network public. Um, you're dealing with like a, a finance professional. I mean, I think he was on a council with Alan Greenspan. So anytime Alan needed something, Mike was one of the guys he called. So just a whole different level of uh, financial intelligence. So I learned a lot from him because I would go to him with questions and painfully, he wouldn't always tell me the answer. He would lead me down a path that let me figure out the answer. Um, and then he would validate the answer once I got it. And that made me a way better executive and actually way better at financials than, than I ever would have been without it. So, you know, there's a lot of value, not just the cash that you get from people, but the other pieces like Mike's cash invested in Talent Rover was fundamentally a part of our success. Mark, Mike's ability to groom me and uh, mentor me was a much bigger part of our success than the cash. And that's just a lesson learned for anyone who's looking to raise cash. Like, 
the people that invest in the company who invest as you as the founder, like it's not about their check. Yes, you need the money, but there's so much more if you build the relationship, kind of like my relationship with you and some of the things we've all already done together. It's, it's a different game if you can develop that trust and, and um, give and take to help each other. Um, so Talent Rover was doing its thing. We had a lot of struggles. We had a lot of success. We had you know all the ups and downs, you will. Bullhorn wanted to buy us. We sold, decided to sell. They go, um, which is nice when you have a company that wants to buy you that bad. Um, and shortly after we got acquired, I decided to leave because I had an idea of I want to solve the pain that I lived at Talent Rover. Um, kind of like I wanted to solve the pain I had in, staff, in staffing with a better software. This was the same thing. I wanted to solve financial forecasting. And weren't you software. advising some companies as well, though? I, I thought like from Talent Rover to, so you were kind of helping some CEOs yourself, grooming and mentoring them to say, hey, man, you got to focus on this. You got yeah. to measure this. And you got to benchmark yourself periodically to this. And it became kind of like SaaS metrics. Yeah, or, I mean, so, I say that, yeah, metrics of SaaS. Yeah, so when I when I left Bullhorn, I wasn't doing any of that when I was at Bullhorn. When I left Bullhorn um, and people started find out, finding out that I was, you know, essentially taking a break until we really announced what I was up to, um, I got a lot of requests for consulting. I got a lot of requests for helping other SaaS founders figure out how to do all of this. I got also a lot of requests to help people understand how to build Salesforce-based businesses and how to build on force.com as it was called back then. So it just sort of created this consulting business out of nowhere um, that was enabled, enabling me to bring in cash as we started to build Place. Okay. Uh, in Place really out of the gates, we we wanted to, to do all the things that I was doing manually in spreadsheets, but we wanted to automate that. So. Like we didn't have the gotchas and the formula mistakes and just the time and effort that it took to get all the data gathered to even do a forecast. We just wanted to stream all, streamline all of that. And that was the original version of what we set out to do in, in, two, in the beginning of 2019. Okay, so so tell us about um, about Place in its first, first kind of innings and then maybe where Place has grown to today. So uh, what do you do for SaaS companies? Yeah, I mean, the story um, is we wanted to solve financial forecasting and the reporting and the, the ability to visualize that information. So the analytics piece of it, right? Um, I had this vision of we needed to connect finance to the business. Um, like all of the FP&A tools I tried to use and all the Excel spreadsheets, for me, one of the things that was fundamentally missing was only finance had access to them. And the rest of the business only got what you, finance decided you should get. And I just saw that as a, as a problem. Like you have all of these people who are working at your company and you're trying to get them to execute and you're trying to make you know, the goals of the company happen. But yet you're not giving them the full visibility to understand the context of what's actually happening with the business. You're just giving them the output, which leads to a lot of questions about, you know, how can I influence in my role, regardless of what that role is, in a way that gives the best possible output to the company. And a lot of times that output is, I need to hit my sales quota or I need to do this or that. What if you give people the ability to say, this is how you impact cash flow. By doing this, you improve cash. By doing that, you hurt cash. That's a different way of thinking that no one's really ever talked about because there's always been this weirdness around 
employees shouldn't know how much cash the company has because if the money, if the company's running out of cash, everyone's going to quit. <laughs> right, right, right. That's the exact opposite of the reality. If they know what their impact does to improve the cash flow of the business, then I think they're more motivated. So we wanted to solve that. So the vision for Place was, what is the operating system that most of the company spends the majority of their time in for SaaS companies? And I was like, that's Salesforce. People are in Salesforce. So what we didn't realize in 2020 when we went to market, because 2019 was you know primarily billed to get to V1, 2020 when we started selling it right before COVID, which was a brilliant time to launch a software company. Um, but we didn't realize then we had a very big uphill battle with, with a very fundamental thing. Our buyer is finance. How does finance feel about Salesforce? And you know, from Talent Rover, which was also built on Salesforce, I developed a lot of relationships with Salesforce execs. And one of the gentlemen, Woodson Martin, we were at um, Partner Kickoff, our Salesforce event, and we sat down for an hour and talked. And he's like, you're going to have a hard time with this product because you're going to have to overcome that challenge. And they had seen that with another partner um, who ended up augmenting their business to, to evolve it beyond just a, an accounting product, which is what they were doing. Um, so we started to think through that. And then as we started to get into sales, like initially we had some really good traction, but then all of a sudden we started to get a little bit stagnant. And we, we were trying to figure out why, because we were talking to these finance buyers and sometimes they were super excited and they wanted to pull the trigger and all of a sudden they couldn't pull the trigger. Um, sometimes they were super excited and um, then the more they got into it, they realized, okay, we don't want to be in Salesforce because I don't trust the Salesforce data. Um, so all 2020, we were battling this and we we're trying to understand, we we're just listening. And this is one of the things I think we got right and are still focused on is constantly listening to understand um, what is actually being told to us. And I learned this at Talent Rover because at Talent Rover, we would have companies come to us and say, the product needs to do X, Y, and Z. And we would say, great, we're going to go make the product do exactly what you told us to do. And it was always a disaster um, because we are having our clients solution our product. What we eventually figured out towards the end is listening to those customers about what they want is critical, but don't let them solution. You are the product and software company. You have to take a, and, and dissect what they're actually telling you to figure out what they are actually asking for and go build that. It's kind of like the Henry Ford thing, right? If Henry Ford would have listened to everything, we would have had more horses and no car. A faster um, horse. Yeah, same thing. So with Place, we were doing the same thing. We paid a lot of attention to who bought, who didn't buy. We did interviews with customers, um, why'd they buy? Who did we beat? What did that look like? What did that feel like? But we spent even more time talking to the deals that we lost. Why didn't you buy? Who did you buy? Um, what was your deciding factor? And it was just this constant, we're just trying to learn. And we were genuinely just trying to learn and that's, the, that's how we uh, informed prospects of it. So we weren't trying to continue to oversell them. We were just seeking to, to understand. And it was from that, that we started to realize that there's parts of our product that were missing um, that, that was preventing customers from really enabling the vision that we had. And you know that vision has never changed since we launched the company, but we've had to evolve what the product does to deliver on that vision. So last year, we rolled out a module for revenue and billing. Um, we always had revenue in, in place. Um, because we needed that, right? If you're going to create a financial forecast and a cash flow, you got to understand the revenue side. 
But what we didn't do is we didn't do ASC, ASC 606 properly. So we weren't doing revenue recognition according to GAAP. So we changed that. We also rolled out billing, like taking uh, the, the deal that's once it's been won and being able to invoice it out. Great. Now still, still something wasn't there. The product market fit just wasn't fully there. But by the way, that module really, really sold me, man. When, when you told me about th that module, I thought, it's kind of my job as the venture capitalist to listen to the entrepreneur say, MRR monthly reoccurring is 100K a month. And our ARR is 1.2. And I'm like, all right, let's go take a look at that revenue and understand that. Are you telling me that people wire you this money every month? Or are they, did you sign a deal to get this revenue? Is this non-reoccurring revenue? Is this licensed? Is this POC? Yep. Are you mowing your neighbor's lawn? Where is this money? <laughs> hey, sometimes you know, building a software, what's you gotta going do what you on with do. your business. <laughs> Where, where is where you help the CEO even understand the how to answer that question? Like, I think a lot of guys didn't understand, or a lot of gals didn't even understand what was happening truly with uh, what their salespeople are doing. You know, these companies are listening to their customers that that they're doing what sometimes they're they're doing the I'm give you in a faster horse. But anyway, I, I thought There's that was incredibly important. And, and what's a nice to have and what's a must have in a you know urgent still, economic climate. But we still weren't there. So everything you're saying is true. Like the revenue piece is fundamental. The billing piece is fundamental. And I think forecasting and understanding cash management, especially in an economic downturn, understanding cash flow is critical. Um, but what we realized in the beginning of this year, um, again, from listening to a customer, we weren't there. And what I mean by that, we had a customer who came to me and it's a craft ventures portfolio company and he's like here's what they want that craft ventures deck is online that you can pretty much find it as far as what they usually ask for portfolio companies for um we've never seen it we we've never engaged with craft but he's like here are two charts that i have to give to my board and to the vcs that we have to do every month and one of them was a chart that was arr compounded monthly growth six months 12 months right in in, in the pattern there the second one was revenue broken down by type of revenue. Is it initial? Is it add-on? Is it churn? Is it reduction? All this stuff. I'm like, great. This is super simple. We are. This is a canned report for us in place. Send it over to him. He's like, all your numbers are wrong. I'm like, how in the world? So we have these bi-directional integrations with the accounting systems, right? So we're pulling in all the actuals from the accounting. So I looked in their QuickBooks online and I'm like, what's in QuickBooks exactly matches place. And from a recurring revenue standpoint, I am 100% certain my numbers are correct. So we started to talk through, what are, you, what, what are you reporting off of? And he's like, I don't want what's on my P&L, what we've sold. I was like, so you're talking about bookings and I'm talking about revenue. Yeah. And it was really eye-opening for me to have this conversation of, of a very successful entrepreneur who just got his terminology a little off uh, which I think happens a lot in the industry. We, we oh, actually, man. Like, we I mean, just, just, just what is burn off. rate? The yeah. definition of burn is something I go through every day with somebody. We just released a little black book of SaaS um, from place as a, a cheat sheet for all of this stuff, right? So through that conversation, it was clear we had a we had a gap in the product because we do revenue, we do all the expenses and all that, we do billing. 
And we, since we're integrated or built inside of Salesforce, we assumed you could get all the bookings information out of Salesforce. When I dug into this, I realized you can't get all the bookings information out of Salesforce. There's, there's fundamentally pieces that Salesforce doesn't do. And it was through this conversation that we realized, wait, we need to solve for bookings. Um, so through that exercise, we started to think through how do we solve for bookings, which led to the subscription management product that we started to sell this year, which manages sales and renewals and gives you all the visibility as to all your growth rates and really just solves all of it. So now what we do, bookings, billings, revenue, forecasting, and then all the analytics around it. So if you think about this, we're plugged into sales. And subscriptions though, subscriptions was key. Yeah. And that was like, that's what changed this year where all of a sudden our whole go-to market has changed where, you know, we were selling to primarily a finance buyer, which we still, still tell, sell to. But now our biggest growth is we sell to heads of customer success, heads of sales, heads of like the, the revenue generation team. And guess what? All of those people live in Salesforce. So through this journey of listening and pivoting and, and selling and, and figuring out what's working or not, but constantly digging in and asking questions, how do you get more value? How do you get more value faster? How can we make this a better product for you? We were paying attention to the value delivery we got for customers. We were also paying attention to our average sales price. How can we charge more? How can we get a bigger sales price as we're solving these challenges? And that fundamentally changed everything in, in 2022. And it's a pretty exciting time right now for the company as we're starting to see this really take off. Well, the, you know, I, I always like to, to hear stories that have some actionable advice that someone can replicate rather than someone beating their chest like Tarzan and taking a victory lap that sure. is not going to help anybody else. But when we go into these economic slowdowns, even like Apple has a hiring freeze sitting on their trillions of cash, um, your face as an entrepreneur or even the VC working with the entrepreneur of saying, do we execute on this roadmap and build more and spend more money on engineering or should we sell what we got and uh, try to tip into profitability or default the live? And I think your story of what's happened in 2022 was um, viciously invest in the product actually and make sure that you bit off the subscription bit and that uh, you were able to shift not to stop selling into the finance department that does not live in Salesforce and doesn't understand why they're paying for it and shift over to the revenue people that said, this is a no brainer. This is a must have. This is not a nice to have. Um, and, you know, sometimes the point salute, I sometimes think the VC says, uh, my job is to help you focus. And the entrepreneurs to have the vision of all the places their technology can, you know, provide value. And the VC thinks she's doing a great job by telling you to focus on, let's just sell the shit out of this point solution so that we can show growth in numbers. And then we'll raise more money on that milestone. When in fact, you guys, you know, extending the product enabled you to convince everybody it was a must have. And it wasn't yeah. a... A nice to have, and it, and it changed the whole dynamic of win rates, I think. Yeah, our win rate right now is seven times higher than it was in the beginning of the year. So that says uh, everything. So your win rate went up 7x. 7x. Um, the what, what we focused on was, and this is genuinely true, value. Are we delivering real value for these customers? 
Because um, if you're not, when you have an economic downturn, guess what happens? Everything that the company, the customers don't feel they're getting true value from is going to go away. Um, but it was that value that was both, are they getting it? Then how fast are they getting it? And we obsessed over that, which is why we're so focused on asking questions um, to try to understand, one, why we we're having some of the challenges with win rate that we were having. Um, but two, we wanted to make sure there wasn't like a crazy churn that was going to happen when we sell customers if they don't get the value because now we're in a tough economic cycle, which I think, you know, there's there's an argument to be made that forecasting software as a standalone software could have a very difficult 2023 um, if people can do financial forecasting on their own. We'll see what happens. I still think there's a need there. There's also an argument that selling to a finance buyer can be challenging in a downturn. We love selling to the finance buyer because we love to geek out on all the financial analysis and all the stuff that we can do and all of that and how we can help them. But we also need to be practical and say, as much as we believe in what the product can deliver, are people using it? What's the engagement rate? And that engagement rate was a big piece of the value prop. Like it's great that we have a killer financial product and you can get down to the penny on any transaction in the system and understand variance and blah, blah, blah. That's fantastic. If, we're, if they're not using it, and if there's not a compelling case for them to fully use it and fully engage with it, you have a problem. And that's where we started to see some of this friction with having the only financial forecasting product built in Salesforce um, and getting companies to truly adopt it. So like some of the churn that we experienced was the finance person that we sold to got recruited to another company. And the company yeah. that they left were like, we don't know what to do with this thing. Only Sally was using it and Sally's gone. Right. Um, so we had to focus on how do we broaden the value prop across the company, which is what we originally wanted to set out and do and work backwards. And, you know, one of the most recent deals that we, we won, our biggest first year ACV ever sold, um, the deal closed in 17 days. We had a verbal yes in seven days from an inbound lead, which sounds like a dream, right? Um, what this person said, he's like, the FP&A part of our platform is a fundamental differentiator from anything else we've seen. But at the same time, the RevOps person was like, this product is going to save me so much time and I really get it. We nailed the value prop for both of those people in one product at a price point that made sense. And that's where the magic happened. But it was that obsession over value and product market fit. And people throw around, and I hear this a lot on my podcast, product market fit, go to market fit, all the stuff. Product market fit is essential. And the only people that can really tell you if you have product market fit are your customers. And are you really answering and talking to them to, to, to figure this out? Um, and it's not what we had to spend two years doing. Well, when I'm when I'm trying to get a new sales lead for you guys and bring customers to place technology. I tell people what you're spending now on humans to do this function is a bigger number than what you will spend on, on this product service offering. So do you want to pay your, you know, your own team? Like it's a full-time hire. It's a full-time hire. Yep. And in the if you're in the United States, what's a full-time hire going to cost you? And it's a bigger number than than what you'll spend on this. And then if you are a SaaS company and you're dealing with like craft ventures and trying to show your SaaS metrics, um, you could do it much better and save money. So it's it's as simple as that. I mean, am I off base? No, you're spot on. Like an example for you. 
Um, we have an executive on our advisory committee. She's run billion dollar company. She's been CEO, CIO, all this. Um, her most recent job, um, she was at a $200 million SaaS company with 800 employees as the chief customer officer. And she would spend five hours every Sunday night building out a renewals forecast for the next week. In place, she can just press a button and the renewal forecast is there. So senior executive, probably I don't know, half a million dollar salary. I have no idea what she was making, but that size of company chief customer officer has to be a pretty big salary. Five hours a week to do that, like the cost there, it just doesn't even equate. And that's just yeah. one fraction of what, what can be done. You may have also avoided a suicide there, <laughs> but, but so, so let's, let's talk about you. You're talking to so many SaaS companies. Yeah. I'd like to get your reading on where the market is. Obviously we've had a stock market crash. We've had everything from like war fam play, you know, famine plague and everything with, uh, what are you seeing in the market with animal instincts of hiring, firing, staffing? I mean, part of, I mean, you've got a module that I know you're working on that's that carefully looks at every single head in and out of these companies as part of the expenses and how it ties to revenue. But what's your sense of um, hiring, firing, staffing? And we can talk about fundraising in this world, in this the current market too. Yeah, I mean, I get to talk about this a lot of place, but where I really get to talk about this is on cash and burn, um, which by the way, the name is awesome. I can't take any credit for it. My, my head of marketing came up with that. He's brilliant. That's um, good. Um, but I get to talk to like the whole premise of cash and burn is you know, like the three parts of every show. First part, who are you? Like to the guests, what do you guys do? Second part, which is the meaty part, is a story about how they nearly failed or some significant challenge in the business. And the third question is relevant to what you just asked. I asked them, what do you think other founders or senior leaders at SaaS companies should be focused on right now? Um, and the answers are across the board. Like there, there's a lot of different answers. And I think the theme that resonates with, with all of the answers is every startup or every SaaS company is different. Um, so truly understanding what's happening in your business is the first step to start thinking about what you need to be doing. I think a lot of people are talking about the shift which is a which is interesting to me because it, it doesn't seem like it's a it's a business shift, business philosophy shift. It's a SaaS company shift of growth at all costs is not the answer right now. Um, capital efficiency is the answer right now. Um, how do we get to profitability? Is there a path to profitability? Burn multiple and all of those things that you that you mentioned. That all now is a thing. Rule of forty. Okay, this is this is coming back to light. Like, what is rule of forty, and how does all this work? And like, it's the it's the conversation around how do you manage cash? Because we've lived in a world for what a decade where cash has been easy to get, um, as much as it may have felt like when you're trying to raise money. It's not. It's, it's actually been fairly easy to get, and it's been a free flowing spigot as long as you were growing. Um, but now that spigot is no longer turned on, and it's how can you grow? without needing more cash. And I was doing a prep call today with a guest who's about to come on the show. And she is pretty vehemently opposed to VC fundraising. Um, she has a reason. Um, but the, the biggest thing that I took away from the prep was she's actually focused on trying to run a profitable business versus constantly looking for new money. And I yeah. talk about this a lot where Fundraising is used for a lot of different things, right? It's used to pay your bills. It's also used to grow the company. 
But I think over the past decade, what we've seen fundraising used for a lot is a Band-Aid. Uh, I want to focus on getting to my next round both versus I'm focused on building a profitable company. And there's reasons for it. And those reasons make sense depending on how you're rewarded by the investment community. Um, but that reward has changed. It's changed in the public markets. It's changed in the private markets, which is why you're seeing some of the challenges that you're seeing now, in my opinion, where valuations are just not what they were. And the million dollars you invested in the company last year might be only worth half a million now uh, because that valuation was so wacky. And these are the types of things I think in general people are talking about. I think, you know, hiring is interesting. This is one of the things that I think is confusing about the current economic climate. It's still a really tough hiring market. Like it's hard to find the people that you're looking for. And I think we're starting to see that loosen up a bit. Um, but wages are still high. Unemployment's still very low, especially in tech. You know, all the layoffs and things like that are there happening at the big companies. will be interesting to see how how this really impacts. Um, you know, layoffs suck. No one likes layoffs. So they're a terrible thing. Um, there's reasons, I think, as to why some companies are doing it more aggressively than others right now. Um, but it's the nature of this cycle. And if you've been through an economic cycle like this before, you've seen this play out before. But it is different with, you know, the, the COVID spend. I was talking with a company um, last week that they were surprised their revenue went down, but yet they were in a very COVID beneficial type business where their sales went nuts because of COVID. And in my mind, I was like, did you not think COVID was going to stop and those sales would slow down? And like, how did you plan for it? Um, but I think this is the world we're in. Like, no one likes to have less, less growth, but if that growth is inflated, um, due to unnormal circumstances or artificial circumstances with so much money being pumped out because of COVID, I think you're going to have what we're experiencing. Um, and talking with these other CEOs, there's agreement with that statement. There's also disagreement with that statement as well, that, you know, we're in a deep recession right now. 2023 is going to be brutal. I don't personally think um, it's going to be as aggressive as, as some of what's being said, but I don't know. Um, but the consensus is all over the map is, is the real answer to your question, but people are trying to figure out where do they go and how do they survive it? Um, you know, one, one person I was talking, who's out raising around right now was told he needs to get four years worth of runway. Ooh. Like, what are you going to do with four years worth of runway? <laughs> well, I mean, four years, I mean, that, four years to sit on it. I'm like, that, that's, okay. that's, that's just crazy. I, I mean, my perspective on that is that um, you could, you could, rather than say you need four months of runway, you, uh, you could say uh, raise enough money to aggressively grow with a charting a path to profitability and this is the last round you ever need to raise um, it, it is a logical thing. But I mean, the general logic is I'm going to raise the money I need for a in good times, 18 month runway in rough times, 24 month runway. And uh, I will make enough progress to be able to raise an up round um, to extend the runway. But I think it depends on what stage you're at. If you're if you're in a business that is never going to be profitable in the next 24 months, um, and you think we might be pulling out of a recession, but then again, it could get even worse. Fed rates go up, and then it just gets we 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 put ourselves into a self-inflicted, purposefully done recession. 
then um, you might be pretty happy that you raised around and ran your business to be able to yeah. get to profitability. You know, you also have the companies though. I have a buddy of mine that I went to school with over in Tokyo. His company is um, uh, self-driving cars. Um, and the amount of capital you have to raise and burn before you see a penny of revenue is phenomenally high. Um, so part of this is, do you understand your business and do you understand your business model? And does the business model make sense? Like if you have a business that you're developing something as complex that, as that, that just takes development time, then you need to look at, okay, what's the appropriate runway? Yeah, but at the same time, I'll bring in an extreme analog is biotech that, okay, let's accept it's going to cost a full $500 million or $1 billion to get this drug into grandmom's mouth with FDA approval. But you're going to go through phase one clinical trials. Then you're going to go through phase two clinical trials, phase three clinical trials. If, if the efficacy is negative, uh, is bad on the phase one, wouldn't you feel like an idiot that you gave them money to go through FDA approval in phase two and three clinical trials? Yeah, you should. Shame right. on you as a very stupid, bad, dumb investor. And if they're doing LIDAR or something complicated with autonomous self-driving vehicles, whatever, um, it's still metaphorically similar to the clinical trials that they need to demonstrate they can hire a team. They need to demonstrate they can retain that team. They need to demonstrate that they can achieve some kind of milestone and you know and you're just the guy to define the milestone and measure it but yeah. like it's important to get through a milestone and then say okay now that we've proven we didn't screw that up and in fact we are doing you know something right um you should be able to raise money at a higher valuation totally. moving forward now if someone was dumb enough to give you the money for phase one two three fda but at some horrifically low share price in valuation, then it was kind of dumb on the entrepreneur side of giving up 80% of the company yep. when it was ultra risky. If they go through phase one clinical trials or whatever that metaphor is for your non-drug discovery company, well, now you say, hey, you were so lucky to get into my company at a 3 million pre, 10 million pre-money valuation. I've got demand for this that's setting the price at 50 and so you go through milestones. You don't put good money after bad and, you know, ask totally. for the money back. And we're saying the same thing. And my point with what you're saying is, is still the same point I was making, but in a very different way of saying it. It's not all about revenue growth every time. And the two examples you just gave, the milestone's not revenue. Exactly. The milestone is validation that it's going to deliver. And how do you raise enough and understand your business enough to know how much do I need to get to that milestone? Because then when I get to that milestone, what's my next milestone? And how much do I need to do to get there? Um, so raising money itself is a challenge in all environments. If you don't really know what you're going to use the money for and how you're going to benchmark, are you successful with getting there or not? Because, you know, when I look at doing angel investments, which I do, that's my biggest question. Like, uh, I can, like, you get a financial model, and I'll, I'll tell you if I believe it or not, but just based off of my background. But fundamentally, it's do I trust the founder or founders that they really understand what their business actually is and what's it going to take to build the business? And that's, for me, 
And I don't, I'm not a professional investor like in your world, but for me, that's that's the gut check of, do I believe that you actually understand your business and you have a really good grasp of how you think you're going to get through these milestones and what those milestones actually are in your business versus someone else's business? Yeah, I think, I think that um, in every VC fund is different in what their culture is. And we were never um, growth at all, at all costs. But I think that you have some large funds that were saying, we're going to fuel if it costs you $100 to make $50 of revenue, we love we love in that. <laughs> and so they they would just pour in a big amount of money, demonstrate more growth, someone else pours money in, and you start to notice somebody's selling shares on the secondary market a- after having fueled it. I think the you know, I think the pause button has been pushed on that for now. And uh if someone's raising around uh they need to demonstrate some sh- you know some kind of uh milestone progress and if you go into it into it together of saying we're not looking for revenue on the semiconductor company we're just looking to show that you know you're saving money on the production of a semi a, you know of these wafers or something and once that's demonstrated now we're going to give you the 25 that you need to sell into the fabs in taiwan because that's not going to be cheap and then the next milestone is get a purchase order. <laughs> so, so, you know, it could change. Well, it's, you know, fundraising is, is an art. It's it's a sales process. Just like you're going to give your, your sales team, like in my world at a SaaS company, I'm going to give you a quota, I'm going to give you targets and all this stuff. And we're going to work backwards and we're going to see all the other metrics that need to go into you hitting that quota because there's a lot of things that go into it. Like we were talking about win rate. There's also pipeline cover. I mean, there's just endless metrics that I could rattle off. But the, the fundraising experience is the same thing. Like me as an entrepreneur, I am pitching whoever I'm trying to get to invest in the company. And what is my pitch? And then how do I measure that pitch? How many people am I going to have to talk to to get there? Um, like a lot of people, when I talk about my angel funding experience, they look at like I have three heads because it's not typically normal that you can raise that much from angels is what I've been told. In my world at Talent River, that's just what we did. So when I was launching Place, I'm like, this is normal. And then I realized, okay, this is- So once again, give us the numbers. How much did you raise for Talent River? Talent River, we raised 25 million from 15 angel investors. That's crazy. And then and then, and then, then it plays. I mean, I know these numbers, but how much have you raised for Place to date? So we're in a round right now. Um, we're, we've raised $10 million to date. Um, roughly 10% of that or so is owned by Venture. And the rest is owned by me and Angels. Um, luckily a yeah. lot of the people's from Tyler over. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've only seen this from a few people in the Valley that, that were like you that were able to do that. And I think that, uh, they've all been insanely good at, uh, putting together materials and even the videos to be able to explain to people exactly what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so that you're able to kind of herd the cats, you know, you well, know, I, I look at my investors, um, just like I would look at myself when I invest in a company, like there's always the mindset of, does this make sense? Do I feel comfortable wanting someone to invest in where we're at and would I invest in the company or not? And I invest in every single round that we do. Um, cause if I want to invest, there's a, there's a fundamental problem there, but then I lean into investors, which a lot of my CEO buds think I'm a little, little wacky for this, but in tough times, the first thing I do is call my investors. Um, and I have more of a transparent relationship that I think with the investors who have invested with me over all the years. And I think I see from a lot of my peers, because there's, 
you know, I, and I think rightfully so. There's a concern that, okay, if I share too much, this is going to spook them and I may not be able to raise more money. I look at it as I'm going to share consistently. So every quarter, like, like the video you're talking about, I create an investor update video where it's me talking to the investors for 20 to 30 minutes, explaining what I see, but also then every one of those investor updates, seeking opinion and seeking input. Of what am I missing? What else do you see? I also have an advisory board of other C-level executives where they're just constantly beating up what I'm doing on purpose. It's like, tell me what else I'm not seeing. Not because I want them to tell me what to do. I just want someone else who's not in my seat, who either has a vested interest or who doesn't have a vested interest to tell me where I'm missing or what, what's looking good. And this current fundraising round that we're in, that actually changed the, the focus of a lot of what's in my my pitch deck. Um, so I've started fundraising what two three weeks ago, um, and you know I'm almost done with fundraising now, and I'm fortunate in that respect because the investors are believing in what we've accomplished, um, and a lot of that's because I was able to articulate it in a way that wasn't just my vantage point of it, but it was external people's vantage of wait, tell me more about this. This seems like this is a either a good thing or a bad thing, and how do you address that? And you know I think the Art to keeping investors on board is you share the bad news as much as the good news, but you try to be balanced. You can't be overly optimistic, but you can't be overly pessimistic. And a lot of it, you lean into them. So angels, angels are brilliant because most of them have been successful business people. And I love the angels because some of them know my space. Some of them have no idea about my space, but all of them typically know business. So I can go to them and say, I have a business problem and have a conversation with them and get advice that you just can't get anywhere else. Yeah, and it was and and you know, it was one of your angels that brought brought us together. Yeah. I think that being a CEO can be a lonely place sometimes when you're afraid of telling your employees that we've got god help me 2 weeks cash in the bank for payroll and you see them, you know, leasing cars out there after the last rah 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 and then you're afraid of going to your VC and telling them any bad news for fear of getting cut off from the food supply of money and not get unplugged. And that's a, that's a naive perspective. I think a better perspective is to say, just like a marriage or any relationship, good communication is, is what's going to, is what is required. And startups are guaranteed to sail through choppy water. The one person who's never had a problem don't need to hear them on the podcast. We need to hear from the ones that successfully navigate through the choppy water and I would much rather as a venture capitalist here, hey, Andrew, I'm a little worried that my head of sales is going to quit. Come and take a look or you 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 source, you tell me what you think. Try and meet her for a drink and tell me what you think. Yeah. Um, I'd rather hear that than good news. We have a new head of sales. I'm like, well, what happened there? It's too late. It's too late for me to do anything to help you. Like if it's too late for us to do anything to help you, theoretically, we've got some kind of network. That um, the good communication up front, hearing the bad news was honestly way more important than hearing the good news, yep. you know, so, so, so that's just mission critical. It's and, also, and, though, I mean, a fundamental piece of this, though, and I, I don't think this genuinely is done enough on the entrepreneur side. You have to know who you're you're getting a check from. Um, oh, yeah. You have to know how much that check, like it's always exciting to get a really big check from an investor. It's like, wow, they really believe in me. What comes with that check? 
you know, sometimes it's in the legal documents that spells out like rights and stuff like that. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just, is this guy going to, or gal going to be good to work with and a resource or are they going to be a nightmare and I have to do all this extra reporting and all like, are, am I going to be consumed with placating to this one person and how much control and power do they have over me? Not necessarily over the company, but how much focus and doing that extra diligence and not getting, you know, the starry eyed of, wow, people are going to give me a fat check and I just need to take it. Taking a step back saying, great, thanks for the confidence. I have some more questions. Can I talk to some of your portfolio companies? Can I understand more who you are and how you invest? And what do you want? Like, what is your goal when you write that check for me? What do you expect to get on what timeline? And let's have that conversation. Um, I think, and I think it just creates a level of respect. And it's great closing parting advice right there. I always say, you know, don't don't just think about dilution for God's sakes, but look at what's the reputation of the firm? What's the chemistry with a partner, which kind of goes to what you're saying? And what are the economics? And yeah. uh, I guess you're expanding beyond my kind of triggered stored, stored procedure there that says chemistry with a partner of, of like, uh, what am I spider instincts tell me you know it's going to be like to work with this person I, I also think my father once said to me if you don't like someone they can feel it so <laughs> don't think you're just going to make that work yeah and all, it's a long it can be a long marriage you know yeah and all checks aren't equal like you're getting a ten thousand dollar check from someone okay you probably don't need to do as much diligence as getting a half a million million or five million dollar check from someone because you want all investors to be happy but just like your point if you don't like someone, they can feel it. You also have to weigh your battles too. Like, okay, if this investor invested 10 grand, like how much time can I legitimately focus on appeasing them or like in how much time I can't and, and have that conversation as well. Well, Brandon, thanks for coming on. Um, I'm going to start listening to Crash and Burn in my car and catch up on Cash the and Burn. Cash and Burn. Cash and, <laughs> cash and Burn. Sorry, I did it. I did it. I actually said Crash and Burn. <laughs> cash and burn um that's awesome you mentioned uh what's your SaaS cheat sheet should we put a link to that in the show notes uh the little black book of SaaS. yeah we totally should put a link um there's a little website you can sign up for it we'll send it to you and it's just it's a really good glossary of just all the jargon of terms that are out there to help you understand you know things like what's bookings billings and revenue yeah yeah this stuff is good for young vcs it's good for entrepreneurs it's good for everybody and obviously, if anybody wants to talk about uh, learning how to uh, professionalize their business and start using Place, we'd love to hear from you. And if investors want to know the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, you know, Brandon Metcalf and Place Technologies, I'm happy to talk. Well, thanks for having me on. All right, bud. See you soon. Thanks All much. Right, Bye for Bye. now.